Hello, my name is Jamie Scott from Evidence-Based Education and this is a special edition of our regular podcast. This is Knowing Me, Knowing Ed You, the Festival of Education. If you're lucky enough to attend the festival, you'll find that there's just too many amazing sessions going on and you can't get to them all. So in this podcast, you'll get a summary of a few sessions directly from the speakers themselves and we get the day one festival podcast started with Alex Quigley. with Alex Quigley from Huntington Research School and soon to be with the Education Endowment Foundation. Alex, what's your session or sessions about at the Festival of Education? Okay, so my first session is closing the vocabulary gap. Um, I'll be talking about that at the chapel. Um, Now, that is, um, it's basically addressing an issue that we've kind of found across schools, primary schools, secondary schools, teachers have been talking for the last two or three years around with the new curriculum, there's an issue in terms of children having the vocabulary to access the academic language of school and the new curriculum. So I'm basing my talk um, on my book of the same name. Um, and essentially, I kind of try and unpick what that issue is and try and make it clear break it down in terms of what it looks like for um, my little boy in year two and what it looks like for um, science teachers in secondary schools Um, and and obviously break after breaking it down then it's about you know what are the strategies we can employ so um, I talk about explicit vocabulary teaching I also today will talk a little bit about um, oracy and talk and and the academic language of school and how we might um, broach that challenge um, and just end with some provocations around how we might need to think a bit differently um, around um, work in the classroom, around curriculum design and putting vocabulary right at the heart of that. Um, my second talk is um, in the afternoons for the Research Ed Strand. Um, so it's got an emphasis around um, evidence-based practice for teachers. Um, and the topic is how metacognition can transform the classroom. Um, the I think the transform bit was, I think, a bit of... Um, maybe marketing ploy from Tom Bennett. I'm not sure about Transform, but that's based on the new Education Endowment Foundation Gantt report on metacognition and self-regulation. Uh, it's co-written with Professor Daniel Merce, um, formerly of Southampton University, but now um, head of research at um, Ofsted, and um, also Ellie Stringer from the EF. Um, I had the pleasure to write that um, Guidance report for teachers trying to distill the literature review um, that um, Professor Merce um, and Christine Bockhove um, have compiled. Um, and basically, it's trying to take this, this known word, this fancy term that everyone knows a little bit about, and try and make it practical, try and distill it down into what it is. And I think, in terms of moving forward, the first part of the work around metacognition is trying to everyone get on the same page. What it is, what it is, yeah. what are the misconceptions, how it might be practical for teachers. Um, one of the challenges we set today, 
um, in the session is how did you get here um, and, and just actually look at how we travelled to this event and, and okay. how we were metacognitive about that and, and it's just these practical strategies for people to understand really what it is um, and I want people to go away with a better understanding of metacognition um, they won't be able to I don't think kind of apply it you know tomorrow morning's lessons but certainly that understanding kind of you know move, moves the game forward a little bit and um, the next step part of my um, new role BEF is to really mobilize that and to get around the country find out um, how people um, are you know, deploying metacognition in the classroom and find out what projects are happening and and there's lots of work there to talk to teachers about that um, but it's quite exciting okay so if anybody's working on projects around metacognition yeah yeah get in touch with yeah with I'm, yeah I'm willing to travel uh <laughs> looking around the country and i think what we find our, our school systems really varied it's dynamic but it's also really messy so there's great pockets of practice happening everywhere but it's not necessarily joined up yeah so i'm really trying to scope out just some of that great practice around metacognition um and it might at the same time it's still communicating what it is and what it isn't because i still think there's a lot of work there but for me um it's really quite exciting um there's a lot of interest from the guidance report um, because it's things we know a little bit about, but we don't know enough. So hopefully today's a little bit of a start around knowing a bit more. Okay. Just to finish, why, why should someone pay attention to metacognition? What, what, can you tell, talk a little yeah, bit sure. about what it might be able to do for, for them in this? Sure. Year? So ultimately, what it is, is about how a child can monitor and better direct how well they learn. So it's about applying what you know skillfully in a timely way. It's using effective learning strategies. The thing is about it, it's not separate to subject knowledge. It's actually bound within it. The cognition that sits at the heart of metacognition is essential, but ultimately it's how you apply that knowledge. So just a really quick example in terms of um, children who might be reading in one of my English classrooms, uh, my year, year seven lesson. Well, it's about when I'm not there, when they're at home, when they're doing their homework or, or, or not doing their homework very well. It's about them making good choices around what reading strategies. If they're stuck, what do they do? And actually, it just offers an infrastructure for children to learn more independently. It offers an infrastructure for teachers to intervene and support subject-specific you know, teaching and to support thinking. Um, so actually, it's a bit of an infrastructure to improve learning. Right. Okay. And as with any of these approaches, um, implementation is, is key. Will you be touching on that at all today or is it more about what, what it is and how it might be made practical? Um, I, think, I think it is about what it is and what it isn't because I think really, unlike other areas, we've got to get a hold of that. I mean, recommendation one is that teachers need to understand recommendations. Recommendation one is teachers understand what metacognition and self-regulation actually is. Yeah. And until we get there, then we can't hurry down to try and get out in the classroom and, and doing a hundred different things because we've got to have a clear mental model ourselves about what it is, what it does, how we can mobilize it, and then we, whether we evaluate if it's working or not. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to give you know seven tips because people will go straight to the tips okay. and not really understand yeah. when to use that tip why how yeah. why you might use that tip 
and whether it works or not. So I think there's work to be done there. So if you're giving um, tips, people aren't going to think hard about it. Yeah, yeah. And it is, a, it is actually, it's, it's complex stuff. I think what we don't have in education is a really good mental model of how children learn. And that is understanding of, the, of memory, long-term retention, emotion, motivation, metacognition, and, and how that relates to um, knowledge and memory, etc. And we've got to build that up. And and metacognition is one thread of that. There's really great research that underpins it. It's not very well known, and we need to make that more concrete and, and, and get to that point. Cheers. Thanks, Alex. Uh, so, hello, Lily Eastwood from the Hackney Pirates. Um, can you give us a flavour for what your session is about at the Festival of Education? Sure. My session is called Is It Time There Was a Pirate Ship on Every High Street? Uh, because currently there is a pirate ship on Kingsland High Street, and if you're a very lucky one of about 150 young pirates in Hackney, you can go through a trap door and become an author, a screenwriter, or a recording artist um, and work on your literacy, confidence, and perseverance. And we think it's about time there were more pirate ships, and in fact we're going to be opening more really soon. Oh, right, okay. So if you could describe a little bit more about... Um the Hackney Pirates and so what are you you're talking about pirate ships how and, and literacy how does that come together what? uh so the Hackney Pirate is an education charity as I said working on literacy confidence and perseverance and we develop those with three key things one is an unconventional learning space and that's where the pirate ship comes in piracy is not necessarily the key it's the um inspirational motivational supportive space because the young people we work with are referred for falling behind and uh, having fewer opportunities so they have this neutral special place that they're invited to so they're doing reading and writing but they're um, under the sea or they're on a tropical island um, so it's it's a sort of a space where we see their imaginations explode and then we talk about transferring that back to school with them and they also get a one-to-one volunteer and a published outcome every time amazing thank you very much no worries Okay, so now I'm with Harry Fletcher-Wood. Harry, can you tell us a little bit about your session tomorrow, what you're talking about, what the the main message is, uh, why it's important? My session tomorrow is about responsive teaching. What is it? How do we do it? Um, So we're going to talk about six endemic problems, the problems that every teacher will face pretty much every lesson, like how do I know what students have understood and how do I help every student to get better? Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about solutions, to those problems or possible solutions uh, and then a little bit about things that I found out while writing the book that this stuff comes from so for example I was forced to completely look again at sharing lesson objectives and models uh, and I learned a load of really interesting stuff about feedback what to do what not to do and uh, you've written a book on this uh, with the same title um, can you describe for us what what the book addresses and um, and how it can support teachers in the way that they teach Yeah, so it it addresses each problem one at a time. It shares some of the key evidence, whether that's from cognitive science, from formative assessment, from other fields. Uh, And then it gives really concrete examples of, okay, what do these uh, big principles look like in practice? Tries to break it down so uh, any teacher in any subject in any grade can, um, and, uh, can pick up these principles and act on them. Okay. Thank you. And are you able to to give um, to expand on any examples or, or some sort of uh, some practical tip that you might cover in the session tomorrow? Yeah. So um, I mentioned le- lesson objectives. I used to think it was really important to share lesson objectives with students. And then the more I looked at the evidence, the less important I realised it was. Uh, and the more important models are. I think we sort of recognise that a model is useful, but. 
I think making sure that whatever whatever we're doing, we show students not just one module model, but two or three models, and then break down with with them like what is it that makes a good model good? What is it that makes a poor one poor? Whether that's a history essay, a maths uh, sort of a way of solving a maths problem, um, doing that really gives students a, a great understanding of what they're being asked to do. So then, when you set them off and say your turn, they actually know what they're doing. And I think of you as like Mr. Misconception. Um, is that something that you're you're covering? as well in the session or that's that's covered in the book which I uh covered covered in the book uh addressed very briefly in the in the session okay. um owing to the constraints of a 40 minute session yeah okay so harry could you tell us uh, a little bit or give us your opinion on why people should spend time on um questions that can help identify misconceptions and what that's what that really means because students come into the classroom with weird and wonderful beliefs about the world and then whatever we teach them just adds to this further so one of my favorite examples is is what makes a boat sink um, and obviously it sinks because it's heavy but apparently according to scientists it's not because it's heavy um, it's because of uh, density um, and so uh, students are going to come in and think a boat sinks uh, something that an object would sink because it's heavy and we need to to sort of draw that out find out who thinks that um, and then once we've taught them about density um, see whether or not that's made sense and that's sunk in for them not just in that lesson but then subsequently to see if they've learned it so if you subscribe to our regular version of the knowing me knowing ed you podcast you'll know that we do desert island disc style interviews with well-known people working in education and through the course of our chat with them they choose some of their favorite songs and so in true festival spirit we're going to play some songs in this podcast and we're going to play songs that have been chosen by previous guests and this first song was selected by professor rob co
Rob Coe, hello. Hi. What, what are you going to be talking about and uh, why, why might people attend your session today? Okay, well, I'm mostly going to talk about assessment and it's not the title that's on the programme, actually, so I'm sort of going against that. And uh, it's, it's not called What Makes Crap Assessment, but that's basically what it is. So, you know, we did the, um, the, that event with you on What Makes Great Assessment. Okay. We had a, <laughs> an illustrious <laughs> panel of uh, like Alison and Daisy and, and uh, David Weston and others. Yeah. And we all talked about what makes great assessment. And actually, great assessment is pretty rare, I think. Uh, whereas all over the place is crap assessment. So I'm just going to talk about a few features of that and how people can recognise it, I suppose. And if you start to recognise it, then maybe you can think about how you how you move away from the, the less good aspects yeah. and into the better. Yeah. And it, that, all that's in the context of how you... Um, how you evaluate, I suppose, what, what impacts you're having as a, as a teacher in a school, which I think is a really important thing to do, but really hard to do, particularly if you don't have good assessment yeah. underpinning it. What are some of the characteristics of crap <coughs> assessment? Well, can you give us a bit of a... Um, so the main thing that assessment has to do is, is have information in it. So one of the things that crap assessment can do is just not have any information in um, so, for example, if you are uh, just kind of taking a judgment that's already in your head and writing it down, that's not assessment. That, that doesn't, um, doesn't tell you anything new. So, so one of the things that uh, an assessment could do potentially is surprise you. So if it can't surprise you, it's not an assessment. Yeah. If, um, you know, if you've taught a topic and you give your students an assignment on it and you find that all of them can do it or you find that none of them can do it you know that could be a surprise so that that could be an assessment um if you just write down a level that you already knew or if you um you know if you know that the the there's a kind of value-laden constraint you know if, if one of the one of the options is sort of you know inadequate or below or or some euphemism for that um and you know that if you if you label a student as having that then they'll They'll, you know, there'll be all sorts of extra work for you and extra hassle for them. And, yeah. Uh, well, then again, that isn't an assessment because it's constrained. What are your thoughts about using um, sort of grades on a regular basis? So teachers submitting uh, grades into a spreadsheet, some sort of right. or whatever it might okay. be. I don't know, every six Data drops. Yeah. yeah. What a plague those are. They're, um, I, I, I'm yet to see any system that does that kind of thing that I think isn't absolutely hideous and abominable. And what, what, so what's the problem with them? Can you go well, the problem is partly this issue about information, that there isn't any information in it, right. um, that they're sort of made-up numbers that don't tell you anything. They don't either have the granularity that helps you to make sort of informed diagnostic decisions about learning, nor do they have the, the sort of aggregate um, summative quality that contains a lot of information and therefore allows you to to judge the things you need to. And the frequency is too high. You can't, yeah. you know, there isn't going to be change over those timescales, certainly not within the limits of precision that even the best assessment can capture. Um, and the workload that these systems generate is just eye-watering. Mm. Yeah. Apart from that, they're great. <laughs> So now I'm with Rebecca and Claire. Uh, Rebecca, where, which school are you from? So St Edmunds Girls School in Salisbury. Okay, Claire. And I'm down in Dover. 
Okay. And could you tell us a little bit about what your session is about, why someone might attend it? So we're talking today about what research informed what a research-informed classroom actually looks like. So taking the theory and looking at practically how that would you could apply that in your classroom. Um, and that's something that both Claire and I think is really important. Okay. So a lot of education has been about habits and hunches. And what we want to do is, is think about actually how do children learn and how can we harness that information to mean that our teaching is far more effective. So what a lot of our session is about is, well, this is what the research says about learning and about memory. That's, that's fine, that's the theory, but what does that actually look like when it's in a classroom and what resources can you use and how can you ensure that your students are getting the best deal yeah. and using your best bets? How um, Are you looking at any particular approaches um, in so the session? A lot of our um, session is talking about research about memory, so we're talking about um, Robert Bjork's work on okay. desirable difficulties and um, uh, a new theory of disuse so we're looking at memory working memory long-term memory and looking at how we can apply that and um, you also talk a bit about substantive and disciplinary knowledge in, in English wow. so a lot of it is we, we start with what's in the classroom day to day and, and in a lesson for example in, 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 a, in a usual lesson but then we look at the kind of the, the bigger picture which is your curriculum and how you can use research to help you plan a really coherent and really effective curriculum so using research by um, the brilliant Christine Council and Naomi Mayat, who talk a lot about creating coherent curriculum through a sense of narrative. And we, we talk about that quite a lot as well, this idea that curriculum is a progression model. So we have the classroom and we have the curriculum. And then finally, we look at if you are a, a middle leader and our book is about middle leadership, um, then you can help encourage the teacher in your department to be more research informed by creating the conditions for that to happen, whether or not that's by looking at research together or whether or not that's making it part of performance management, that it's the reading and it's the implementation and the evaluation of that um, that becomes part of our development as teachers. That sounds brilliant. Did you mention a book? What's the name of the book? So our book is called Leading from the Middle, A Guide to Effective Middle Leadership and it'll be out uh, towards the end of the year. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, Okay, so now I'm with Kyle Bailey um, from the Institute for Teaching. Um, I want to know, Kyle, what was your session about um, and, and why is what you were talking about important? So it's about expertise and particularly teacher expertise. So one of the things that at the Institute for Teaching that we really care about is how teachers get better. Yeah. Um, and obviously and rightly, there is a huge investment on initial teacher training. Um, but certainly we as a profession need to start thinking about what expert teachers do need to know and the impacts that they have. Um, so we've done some work on defining what teacher expertise is okay. by looking at some experts both within teacher training and also more broadly. So specifically looking at some of the works of Anders Ericsson in terms of deliberate practice and expertise, yeah. um, but also in teaching. Um, so one of the things that we shared was Pepsi's paper on expertise, yeah. uh, which is available on our website. Okay. Um, but it talks about primarily four things that expert teachers um, focus and attend to. So they've got um, mental models. So that's just a posh word for knowledge and how it's organized. Um, those mental models then feed into their actions in the classroom. And then lastly, expert teachers have an impact on their pupils. Um, but, but what are those things that we really need to attend to? Um, so the first thing um, I say, obviously, it might not be obvious to everybody, but subject knowledge, yeah. um, knowing your subject, 
um, but not just knowing your subject, knowing how to teach it. Yeah. So we at Institute for Teaching call, call that kind of the path, um, the curriculum aspect. Um, how pieples learn um, is a big aspect. Yeah. So within our programs, um, all of our programs at Institute for Teaching really emphasize understanding what learning is. Um, so we shared another paper on learning today. Um, one of the things that we, we really feel strongly about as well is uh, how our expert teachers are experts in their context. So they know their peoples, they know what their peoples know and don't know. Yeah. Um, and on the master's program, we're aware that we don't necessarily have that knowledge and that expertise. So we need to make sure that those teachers are attending to that yeah. and aware of that and bringing that to our program. Uh, and then lastly is the self-regulation aspect. So um, considering how they learn, considering how they study, considering how they apply things, um, what we're asking them to do to develop expertise is really difficult. Yeah. Um, and teachers are really busy, yeah. um, but it's something that if they really do want to become experts, um, they need to work hard on it. Um, so we talked about lots of things in the session. We talked about habits yeah. and habit formation. Um, so one of the big bets that we're making on our program is that um, we need to be looking at the research and reading the research. We need to be translating it into classroom practice. Um, and that there's that knowing-doing gap. Yeah. But we also talk about the doing-keeping gap. Okay. And that, so Can you explain a bit more? About yeah. So one of the things I talked about in the session was around... Um, you know, I was in a school earlier this week with a deputy head teacher. I was talking about their training on phonics. They said, you know, I went to a read writing training um, to be trained up on phonics. And I was like, oh, you know, what was that? And they, they were saying it was a it was a two day, got out of school. And so I've now learned read writing. And my reflection, so being a primary teacher in my background is, you know, we wouldn't do that with pupils. We wouldn't say, oh, we've covered triangles in year one. Like they've had two days on it. Um, and really thinking about how we can apply that to teaching yeah. as well. Um, so really practicing what we preach. Okay. So on our program, um, we've basically designed it to both attend to habits and habit formation. So thinking about cues and triggers, um, but also building it across and beyond the two years. So one of the things that we say is we don't necessarily want to just see you doing the change in your classroom in June of 2018. Yeah. But what that's what is that going to look like in 2020? Yeah, and what getting better at like doing in, it as well. Yeah, and so, so re refining, uh, thinking about how you can make sure that you're keeping that fidelity to the research. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not wanting, you know, a, uh, for lack of a better term, like bastardization of yeah, the yeah. of the research. We want you to maintain the integrity to it. Yeah. But it needs to be something that you can easily implement. Yeah. Um, you know, it's feasible in your classroom, but it's ultimately having the biggest impact. Hello, Aisha Small Hello. from LKM Co. Hi. Um, can you tell us a bit about the session or the panel that you're on? Yes, I'm on the panel later on. It's chaired by my colleague, Anna Trifui, and it's going to be about making flexible working work. Can it work? What, what, what are you going to say? I think it can work, but it depends, on, it depends on many factors. So the reason I'm on the panel is because uh, alongside my uh, work as a associate, senior associate at LKM Co., I'm also a teacher still for two days a week. So I work for LKM Co for three and a half days and I'm a teacher for two days. And for the mass people around us, that adds up to more than five days, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so I'm kind of from a practical point of view. So you are making it work? And... I am doing my best to make it work, yeah. Okay, how do you make it work? Well, um, I make it work by... Got a time machine. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I think um, it's interesting because I see it from two 
points of view. So obviously I work flexibly at LKM Co as well as working flexibly at school. And I think my LKM Co stuff is super flexible because I don't have to be there apart from once a week. So it's very, very flexible. I just have to get the work done. Obviously in schools that's different and my role now is much more classroom based than it used to be. So I used to be an assistant head teacher. I'd actually say that it's probably easier for people with senior leadership responsibilities to do flexible working well, um, just because there isn't the constraint of being in the classroom as much, whereas now I have much more class-based time, and obviously you have to teach children, you can't move them around and move them yeah. to my lounge or something. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. cool. Thank you very much. That's all right. Hope it goes well. Thank you. We're going to play another song now, and this one was chosen by previous podcast guest, Daisy Christodoulou.
now. I'm with uh, Craig Barton. Craig, can you give us a, a, a description, a summary of uh, one of your sessions that you've done here today? Yeah, of course. So I've, I've been lucky enough to do two. The one I'll talk about is a big plug for me book here. So my yep. book came out January, um, How I Wish I Taught Maths. So I talked about the book today and I picked out four key things I've learned from it. So the first was me campaign to ban all displays in classrooms. It's all kicking off there. It divides the audience. So people were leaving straight away there, people throwing things. Um, my second thing um, that I talked about was um, the importance of intelligent practice so not just coming up with random questions to give kids but questions where kids can form an expectation and predict what the answer is going to be and then reflect on it if that expectation isn't realised so that was a big one I talked about SSDDs now I need a catchy name for these but these mm. are same surface different depth questions so questions that look the same on the surface but deep down they're different topics in maths and this really makes kids think about the differences between questions instead of the similarities and the final thing I talked about was goal-free problems. And instead of giving kids questions that have one start point and one specific end point that seems miles away and it's really daunting for kids, instead we remove that end goal and say, just find out what you can. And this makes kids more willing to participate in the question and more it makes the questions more accessible as they can just take tiny steps towards the answer. So that was my session, just kind of chatting about my book. And on the, the subject of questions, mm. so you're behind diagnostic questions? Is yeah. That how many questions? have you got on there? That's a very good question actually. So we've got over 50,000 free multiple choice diagnostic questions for all subjects and 33,000 of them are for mathematics. But we've also got computer science, science, languages, history, English, all free on diagnosticquestions.com. Amazing. Thank you very much. Cheers, My Craig. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm with uh, Nathema. She's from Pendle Vale College. Nathema, can you tell us a bit about what you're going to be doing at the Festival of Education, which session you're running? Yeah, I'm running a panel with, now I'm on a panel, yeah. with Kat Skirt, looking at retention of teachers and how coaching can help to return teachers in the profession. Okay, and what do you think are going to be um, some of the sort of main messages or, or questions or points in, in that session? I think the main questions will probably be why should we invest in coaching? How will coaching actually help us to return teachers? And also the difference between mentoring and coaching and, and what are the differences between them? And how do we get teachers to buy into something that perhaps they may not be thinking that they need at that time? Yeah, and can you give us a little bit on, on how those things can help retain and what why you think they might help retain and how you can get that buy-in? I think at the moment there is a recruitment crisis in terms of teachers and I think coaching is a really good way of getting people to develop their own CPD and perhaps leadership skills and teaching qualities to help them stay in the profession. Maybe there are some frustrations that teachers may experience and coaching is a really good way for them to be able to take ownership of those frustrations and try and find their own strategies and solutions to help them out of that and hopefully move on in their career in teaching. Okay, thanks very much, Nathima. So I'm with Susie Dent now, who um, I've been told to introduce as the Queen of Words. Not by me. Not by Susie, <laughs> no, no. And, and, not, and she hasn't got a team of people here either, no. suggesting that that's how I should introduce. No She's got fans. She's got fans. <laughs> um, Susie, could you give us a, a brief summary of uh, the session that you're going to deliver at the Festival of Education, please? Yes. Uh, well, I'm going to kick off with a couple of countdown outtakes, uh, because oh. there are so many of those. And uh, so I've chosen a couple of my favourites, uh, which are a little bit rude, but, you know, 
I think we're still broadcast actually on Countdown. So that's how I'm kicking off. But the real um, point of what I'm talking about today is how Britain is just full of secret languages that are um, sort of within, kept within closed groups. Um, tribal languages, if you like, um, that we are all swapping every day. We're just not always conscious of it. So if you're a teacher, uh, you will be using your own slang uh, amongst yourselves. If you are um, a school, obviously, um, kids uh, and young yeah. people have their own slang anyway. That's another code. Um, but every profession, everybody who's united by a passion, whether it's bird watching, clubbing, uh, you name it, will have their own kind of jargon. And people tend to dismiss jargon as being boring and mundane and uh, colourless uh, and impenetrable and of course it's impenetrable because that's the whole point of it but actually when you dig a little bit into it it is fascinating and it tells you a huge amount uh, about the preoccupations of that particular group um as well as just you know the fact that they're reveling in such wordplay even if they're not completely yeah. aware of it so for example a builder might talk about um spreading the fat on Lionel Richie's dance floor uh, <laughs> when all they're doing is plastering the ceiling but for right. them they are, uh, you know, they're kind of introducing a bit of levity into their day, but also they're, they're talking to each other in a way that nobody else could possibly understand. And that unites them. That's a bond. Yeah. Um, and language is possibly the greatest unifying force that we have. Um, so I guess if I have a message, it's um, eavesdrop a little because I am a huge eavesdropper. Uh, pick up those secret conversations and then become a bit of a word detective. You know, wonder why anthropologically speaking people are using language in this way and what it tells us about them and uh, you know it can it can be local dialects as well because people tend to think that those are disappearing and that English is becoming this bland monolithic Americanized you know single language when in fact the opposite is true our local dialects are alive and well and so are our tribal dialects and I think it really pays to tune in. Okay, and now I'm with David Weston from the Teacher Development Trust, the CEO of the Teacher Development Trust. David, at the festival, what's your input? Are you doing, are you doing three sessions, I think? Yes, uh, they're all linked, perhaps not surprisingly, by the theme of teacher development. Uh, so the session I did this morning uh, was uh, had the title Unleashing Great Teaching. Um, essentially, how do we lead schools in such a way that we can get the best out of every teacher? Because we know there's a really big difference between schools where people don't improve and they're more likely to leave the profession and they're less likely to have the best ideas to access to teach their children. Um, we know there are those schools, but we also know there are schools where people consistently improve over time. And not only do they consistently improve, they support others to learn as well. So how do we get more of that latter sort of school? So I talked about a few key ideas. In particular, I'm focusing on what leaders can do here. So we know we need to create an environment of trust how do we do that? Well, that's partly including everybody in the discussions about professional learning, making sure we're really listening to teachers' voices, teaching assistants' voices, um, support staff voices, and being clear on how we're offering everybody something which will support their progress, but also help them address the problems they're actually facing, whether it's on reception or working in a small group or with my next class. Um, so how do we create that leadership? We're looking at the processes, we're looking at the culture, uh, we, we explored the idea that, that actually adult learning is very hard and that the reason why it's hard to lead this is because we're socially wired to uh, be very selective about the ideas we listen to. Mm. So we'll often pick out the familiar ideas, re reject the unfamiliar ideas, uh, we'll listen to ideas from people we like, ideas that we don't like, we then decide we don't like the person and therefore we don't listen to their ideas. Mm. And because all of these really problematic social biases 
actually getting a whole bunch of people together who are working with each other and getting them to learn effectively is really hard. But we also know there's research on how to do it well. So when we get people collaborating over a sustained period of time to solve problems together, when they really feel they've got a sense of agency, autonomy to solve real problems in their jobs, to make a real difference to the children um, and to their colleagues, then we know that's more likely to make a difference. We also know that people can get quite stuck into uh, sort of one particular orthodoxy and we need people from outside to shake up ideas and to challenge orthodoxies and to make people think in new ways about existing problems. Um, so we need people from who are going across schools and great research and we need people exploring new perspectives and schools have to ha- have access to all of these. So it's quite challenging. That links to the other two sessions then. One was on coaching and mentoring, which obviously is really covered in creating great conversations and trust for professional learning. But the last session I'll be doing today is um, looking at how this links to recruitment retention. And retention in particular, too many teachers say, I'm not enjoying my job because um, I don't really have much control anymore. I'm being asked to do things that don't feel relevant. Um, I'm being asked to work in ways that don't feel natural to me. Um, I am being uh, increasingly stressed and have less and less control over how I deal with that stress and therefore I'm not enjoying this anymore. They also feeling they're being less rewarded and acknowledged and praised for the work they do do. Uh, and, and so all of these things conspire together to make people say, actually, this is no longer for me because it's always going to be a stressful job. So ultimately, we solve all these problems by improving the leadership of teacher learning in our schools, in our systems, so that uh, we can help teachers thrive in every school and unleash great teaching uh, for every classroom. I hope you've enjoyed our day one podcast. Look out for the festival day two podcast coming soon where I'll be getting summaries of more sessions directly from the speakers. We're going to end this episode with a song selected from our previous interview guest, Dame Alison Peacock. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. Don't worry, baby, just call my name, I'll be there in a hurry, you don't have to worry, cause baby, Always count on me, darling From that 
I think as far back as I can remember hearing music and hearing people sing and perform, I just knew that uh, it's what I wanted to do, so I started singing in church.